Volume Two, Chapter Four of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. The man who follows a wolf goes straight on after him till he rides him down, but in chasing a fox it is always expedient and fair to take across the easiest country for your horse or for yourself, to angle a field, to make for a slope when the neighbouring bank is too high, to avoid a clay fallow, or to skirt a shaking moss. Very frequently, however, one beholds an inexperienced sportsman who does not well know the country he is riding, and sees the field broken up into several parties, each taking its own course after the hounds. Pause for several minutes, not knowing which to follow. Such is often the case with the romance writer also, when the broken nature of the country over which his course lies separates his characters, and he cannot proceed with all of them at once. Now at the present moment I would fain follow the smugglers to the end of their adventure, but in so doing, dear reader, I should— to borrow a shred of the figure I have just used, get before my hands, or in other words, I should too greatly violate that strict chronological order which is necessary in an important history like the present. I must therefore return by the reader's good leave to the house of Mr. Zachary Croyland, almost immediately after Sir Edward Digby had ridden away, on the day following young Radford's recently related interview with the smugglers, at which day, with sad violation of of the chronological order I have mentioned before, I had already arrived, as the reader must remember, in the first chapter of the present volume. Mr. Croyland then stood in the little drawing-room, fitted up according to his own peculiar notions, where Sir Edward's wound had been dressed, and Edith, his niece, sat at no great distance on one of the low ottomans, for which he had an oriental predilection. She was a little excited, both by all that she had witnessed, and all that she had not, and her bright and beautiful eyes were raised to her uncle's face as she inquired, "'How did all this happen? You said you would tell me when they were gone.' Mr. Croyland gazed at her with that sort of parental tenderness which he had long nourished in his heart towards her, and certainly as she sat there, leaning lightly upon her arm, and with the sunshine falling upon her beautiful form, her left hand resting upon her knee, and one small beautiful foot extended beyond her gown, he could not help thinking her the loveliest creature he had ever beheld in his life, and asking himself, is such a being as that, so full of grace in person, and excellence in mind, to be consigned to a rude, brutal bully, like the man who has just met with deserved chastisement at my door? He had just begun to answer her question, thinking how he might best do so, without inflicting more pain upon her than necessary, when the black servant I have mentioned entered the drawing-room, saying, "'A man want to speak to you, master.' "'A man?' cried Mr. Croyland impatiently. "'What man? I don't want any man. I've had enough of men for one morning, surely, with those two fools fighting just opposite my house. What sort of a man is it?' "'Very odd man indeed, master,' answered the Hindu. "'Got great blue pattern on him's face. Strange-looking man.' think him half mad, and he made a deferential bow as if submitting his judgment to that of his master. "'Well, I like odd men,' exclaimed Mr. Croyland. "'I like strange men better than any others. I'm not sure I do not like them a little mad. Not too much. Not too much, you know, Edith, my dear. Not dangerous. Just mad enough to be pleasant and not furious or obstreperous. Where have you put him?' 
in the library master replied the man and he begin taking down the books directly high time i should go and see who is so studiously inclined said mr croyland or he may not only take down the books but take them away that wouldn't do you know edith my dear that wouldn't do without my niece and my books what would become of me i don't intend to lose either the one or the other so that you are never to marry my love mind that you are never to marry edith smiled faintly very faintly indeed but for the world she would not have made her uncle feel that he had touched upon a tender point i do not think i ever shall my dear uncle she answered and saying that's a good girl the old gentleman hurried out of the room to see his unknown visitor edith remained for some time where she was in deep and even painful thoughts all that she had learnt from her sister since zara's explanation with sir edward digby amounted but to this that he whom she had so deeply loved whom she still loved so deeply was yet living nothing more had reached her and though hope the fast clinger to the last wreck of probability yet whispered that he might still love her that she might not be forgotten that she might not be abandoned yet fear and despondency far predominated and their hoarse tones nearly drowned the feeble whisper of a voice which once had been loud and gay in her heart after meditating them for some minutes she rose and left the drawing-room passing on her way to the stairs the door of the library to which her uncle had previously gone she heard him talking loud as she went along but the sounds were gay cheerful and anything but angry and another voice was answering in mellower tones somewhat melancholy indeed but still not sad going rapidly by this was all she distinguished but after she reached her own room which was nearly above the library the murmur of the voices still rose up for more than an hour and at length mr croyland and his guest came out and walked through the vestibule to the door god bless you harry god bless you said mr croyland with an appearance of warmth and affection which edith had seldom known him to display towards any one if you won't stay i can't help it but mind you promise mind you promise in three or four days you know and with another cordial farewell they parted when the stranger was gone however mr croyland remained standing in the vestibule for several minutes gazing down upon the floor-cloth and murmuring to himself various broken sentences from time to time who'd have thought it he said thirty years come lady day next since we saw each other but this isn't quite right for the boy i will scold him i will frighten him too he shouldn't deceive nobody should deceive it's not right but after all in love and war every stratagem is fair they say and i'll work for him that i will here edith my love he continued calling up the stairs for he had heard his niece's light foot above come and take a walk with me my dear it will do us both good edith came down in a moment with a hat or bonnet in her hand and although mr croyland affected on most occasions to be by no means communicative yet there was in his whole manner and in the expression of his face quite sufficient to indicate to his niece that he was labouring under the pressure of a secret which was not a very sad or dark one there my dear he exclaimed i said just now that i would not have you marry but i shall take off that restriction i will not prohibit the bans only in case you should wish to marry someone i don't approve but i've got a husband for you i've got a husband for you better than all the radfords that ever were christened 
though, by the way, I doubt whether these fellows were ever christened at all, a set of unbelieving, half-barbarous sceptics. I do not think, upon my conscience, that old Radford believes in anything but the existence of his own individuality. "'But who is the husband you have got for me?' demanded Edith, forcing herself to assume a look of gaiety which was not natural to her. "'I hope he is young, handsome, rich, and agreeable.' "'All, all!' cried Mr. Croyland. "'Those are absolute requisites in a lady's estimation, I know. "'Never was such a set of grasping monkeys as you women. "'Youth, beauty, riches, and a courtly air. "'You must have them all, or you are dissatisfied. "'And the ugliest, plainest, poorest woman in all Europe "'thinks that she has every right to a phoenix for her companion, "'an angel, a demigod. "'But you shall see, you shall see. "'And in the true spirit of a fond parent's, "'If you do not see with my eyes, hear with my ears, "'and understand with my understanding, why, I'll disinherit you. "'But who the mischief is this now?' he continued, looking out at the door. "'Another man on horseback upon my life, as if we had not had enough of them already. "'Never since I have been in this county of Kent has my poor, quiet, peaceable door "'been besieged in this manner before.' "'It is only a servant with a note, my dear uncle,' said Edith, "'Ah, something more on your account,' cried Mr. Croyland. "'It's all because you are here. "'Bubba, Bubba, see what that fellow wants. "'It's not your promised husband, my dear, "'so you'll need not eye him so curiously.' "'Oh, no,' answered Edith, smiling. "'I took it for granted that my promised husband, as you call him, "'was to be this same odd, strange-looking gentleman "'who has been with you for the last hour.' "'Pooh, no,' cried Mr. Croyland. "'And yet, my lady, I can tell you, you could not do better in some respects, "'for he's a very good man, a very excellent man indeed, "'and has the advantage of being a little mad, as I said before. "'That is, he's wise enough not to care what fools think of him. "'That's what is called being mad nowadays. "'Who is it from, Baba?' "'Didn't say, Master,' answered the Indian, who had just handed him a note. "'He wait an answer.' "'Oh, very well,' answered Mr. Croyland. "'He may get a shorter one than he expects. "'I've no time to be answering notes. "'People in England spend one half of their lives "'in writing notes that mean nothing, "'and the other half in sealing them. "'Why can't the fools send a message?' "'While he had been thus speaking, "'the worthy old gentleman had been adjusting "'the spectacles to his nose, "'and walking with his usual brisk step "'to the window in the passage, "'against which he planted his back.' "'so that the light might fall over his shoulder upon the paper. "'But as he read, a great change came over his countenance. "'Ah, that's right. That's well. That's honest,' he said. "'I see what he means. But I'll let him speak out himself. "'Walk into the garden, Edith, my love, till I answer this man's note. "'Bubba, bid the fellow wait for a moment.' "'And stepping into the library, Mr. Croyland sought for a pen that would write, "'and then scrawled in a very rude and crooked hand.' which soon made the paper look like an ancient Greek manuscript, a few lines, to the beauty of which he added the effect of bad blotting paper. Then, folding his note up, he sealed and addressed it, first reading carefully over the epistle which he had just received, and with which it may be as well to make the reader acquainted, though I shall abstain from looking into Mr. Croyland's answer till it reaches its destination. The letter which the servant had brought was to the following effect. The gentleman who had the pleasure of travelling with Mr. Croyland from London, and who was introduced to him by the name of Captain Osborne, 
was about to avail himself of Mr. Coyland's invitation when some circumstances came to his knowledge which seemed to render it expedient that he should have a few minutes' conversation with Mr. Coyland before he visits his house. He is at present at Woodchurch and will remain there till two o'clock if it is convenient for Mr. Coyland to see him at that place today. If not, he will return to Woodchurch tomorrow, towards one, and will wait for Mr. Coyland till any hour he shall appoint. "'There, give that to the gentleman's servant,' said Mr. Coyland, and then depositing his spectacles safely in their case, he walked out into the garden to seek Edith. The servant, in the meanwhile, went at a rapid pace over Pleasant Hill and Dale till he reached the village of Woodchurch, and stopped at a little public house before the door of which stood three dragoons, with their horses' bridles over their arms. As speedily as possible the man entered the house and walked upstairs, where he found his master talking to a man covered with dust from the road. "'Mr. Mole should have given me farther information,' the young officer said, looking at a paper in his hand. "'I could have made any combination here as well as at Hythe.' "'You sent me off in a great hurry, sir,' answered the man, "'but I'll tell him what you say.' "'Stay, stay,' said the officer, holding out his hand to his servant for the note which he had brought. "'I will tell you more in a minute,' and breaking open the seal, he read Mr. Croyland's epistle, which was to the following effect. "'Mr. Croyland presents his compliments to Captain Osborne, and has had the honour of receiving his letter, although he cannot conceive why Captain Osborne should wish to speak with him at Woodchurch, when he could so easily speak with him in his own house, yet Mr. Corland is Captain Osborne's very humble servant, and will do as he bids him. As it is now past one o'clock, as it would take half an hour to get Mr. Corland's carriage ready, and an hour to reach Woodchurch, and as it is some years since Mr. Corland has got upon the back of anything but an ass, or a hobby-horse, having moreover no asses at hand with the proper proportion of legs, though many, deficient in number, it is impossible for him to reach Woodchurch by the time stated to-day. He will be over at that place, however, by two o'clock to-morrow, and hopes that Captain Osborne will be able to return with him and spend a few days in an old bachelor's house. The young officer's face was grave as he read the first part of the letter, but it relaxed into a smile towards the end. He then gave perhaps ten seconds to thought, after which, rousing himself abruptly, he turned to the dusty messenger from Hythe, and fixing a somewhat searching glance upon the man's face, he said, "'Tell Mr. Mole that I will be over with him directly, "'and as the troops, it seems, will be required on the side of Folkestone, "'he must have everything prepared on his part, "'for we shall have no time to spare.' "'The man bowed with a stolid look, and withdrew, "'and after he had left the room, "'the officer remained silent for a moment or two, "'looking out of the window till he saw him mount his horse and depart.' Then, descending in haste to the inn door, he gave various orders to the dragoons who were there waiting. To one they were, "'Ride off to Folkestone, as fast as you can go, and tell Captain Irby to march immediately with his troop to Bilsington, which place he must reach before two o'clock in the morning. To another, you gallop off to Appledore, and bid the sergeant there bring his party down to Brenzick Corner, in the marsh, and put himself under the orders of Cornet Joyce.' To the third, you would be off to Ashford, and tell Lieutenant Green to bring down all his men as far as Bromley Green, taking up the party in Kingsnorth. Let him be there by three, and remember, these are private orders, not a word to anyone. 
The men sprang into the saddle as soon as the last words were spoken, and rode away in different directions, and after bidding his servant bring round his horse, the young officer remained standing at the door of the inn, with his tall form erect, his arms crossed upon his chest, and his eyes gazing towards Harborne House. He was in the midst of the scenes where his early days had been spent. Every object around him was familiar to his eye. Not a hill, not a wood, not a church steeple, or a farmhouse, but had its association with some of those bright things which leave a lustre in the evening sky of life, even when the day-star of existence has set. There were the pleasant hours of childhood, the sports of boyhood, the dreams of youth, the love of early manhood, the light that memory casts upon the whole might not be so strong and powerful, might not present them in so real and definite a form, as in the full day of enjoyment. But there is a great difference between that light of memory, when it brightens a period of life that may yet renew the joys which have passed away for a time, and when it shines upon pleasures gone for ever. In the latter case it is but the moonlight, a reflected beam without the warmth of fruition or the brilliancy of hope, but in the former it is as the glow of the descending sun, which sheds a purple lustre through the vista of the past, and leaves a promise of returning joy even as it sinks away. He stood then amongst the scenes of his early years, with hope refreshed, though still with the remembrance of sorrows tempering the warmth of expectation, perhaps shading the present. It wanted, indeed, but some small circumstance, by bearing afar, like some light wind, the cloud of thought, to give all around the bright hues of other days, and that was soon afforded. He had not remained there above two or three minutes when the landlord of the public-house came out and stood directly before him. "'Oh, I forgot your bill, my good fellow,' said the young officer. "'What is my score?' "'No, sir, it is not that,' answered the man. "'But I think you have forgotten me. I could not let you go, however, without just asking you to shake hands with me, though you are a great gentleman now, and, and I am much what I was.' The young officer gazed at him for a moment, and let his eyes run over the stout limbs and portly person of the landlord, till at length he said in a doubtful tone, "'Surely you cannot be Miles, the son of my father's clerk?' "'Aye, sir, just the same,' replied the host. "'But young and old we change, just as women do their names when they marry. Not the six or seven years have made me older, either. But I was six-and-twenty when you went away, and as thin as a whipping-post.' "'Now I'm two-and-thirty, and as fat as a porker.' "'That makes a wonderful difference, sir. "'But I'm glad you don't forget old times.' "'Forget them, Miles,' said the young officer, holding out his hand to him. "'Oh, no, they are too deeply written in my heart ever to be blotted out. "'I thought I was too much changed myself for anyone to remember me. "'But those who were most dear to me, "'what between the effects of time and labour, sorrow and war, "'I hardly fancied that anyone in Kent would know me.' "'But you are changed for the better, I for the worse. "'Yet I am very glad to see you, Miles, "'and I shall see you again to-morrow, "'for I am coming back here towards two o'clock. "'In the meantime you need not say you have seen me, "'for I do not wish it to be known that I am here, "'till I have learned a little of what reception I am likely to have.' "'Oh, I understand, sir, I understand,' replied the landlord, "'and if you should want to know how the land lies, "'I can always tell you, "'for you see I have the parish clerk's club,' which meets here once a week, and then all the news of the country comes out, and, besides, many a one of them comes in here at other times to have a gossip with old Rafe Miles's son, 
so that I hear everything that goes on in the county almost as soon as it is done, and right glad shall I be to tell you anything you want to know, just for old time's sake. When you used to go shooting snipes by the brooks, and I used to come after for the sport, that is to say, anything about your own people, not about the smugglers, you know, for they say you are sent here to put them down, and I should not like to preach even to you. I heard that some great gentleman had come down, to Harry somebody, but I little thought it was you, till I saw you just now standing looking so melancholy towards Harborne, and thinking, I dare say, of the old house at Tiffenden. "'Indeed I was,' answered the young officer with a sigh. "'But as to the smugglers, my good friend, I want no information. "'I am sent down with my regiment merely to aid the civil power, "'which seems totally incompetent to stop the daring outrages "'that are every day committed. "'If this were suffered to go on, all law, not only regarding the revenue, "'but even that affecting the protection of life and property, "'would soon be at an end.' "'That it would, sir,' answered the landlord, "'and it's well nigh at an end already, for that matter.' "'Well,' continued the officer, "'though the service is not an agreeable one, "'and I think, considering all things, "'might have been entrusted to another person, "'yet I have but to obey, "'and consequently being here, "'and ready whenever called upon to support the officers, "'either of justice or the revenue, "'both by arms and by advice.' "'but I have no other duty to perform, "'and indeed would rather not have any information "'regarding the proceedings of these misguided men, "'except through the proper channels. "'If I had the absolute command of the district, "'with orders to put down smuggling therein, "'it might be a different matter, but I have not.' "'Aye, I thought there was a mistake about it,' replied Miles. "'But here is your horse, sir. "'I shall see you tomorrow, then?' "'Certainly,' answered the officer, "'and having paid his score, he mounted and rode away.' End of chapter 4